Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. Welcome back medical device manufacturing engineers, medical device packaging professionals, and whoever else listens in on this podcast. This is Charlie Webb, and as usual, I'll be your host today. Today, we're going to talk about the unique device identification systems, the UDI system. You know, it seems like a lot of packaging engineers and device engineers are still a little bit in the weeds when it comes to this topic. So today we hope we can clear up some of the questions that you may have regarding UDI, the UDI directive. Now, as always, when we want to dig deep on a topic, we bring in the pros, and we've certainly done that today. Our SMEs today are Ryan Ott and Ryan Erickson from Packaging Compliance Labs, and we're going to have the discussion on UDI with them today. You know, Ryan, you may remember him. He was on a previous show. He made the mistake of offering to get a hold of him anytime I needed an SME in medical device packaging. And I think by the time this is all said and done, he's probably going to get a restraining order on me. I bug him all the time. So he's back for the second time and he brought along with him Ryan Odd. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today so we can dig into this conversation about UDI. Hello. Hi, Charlie. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Got a lot of good fanfare from the last time you were with me. We had a really great discussion. I just re-listened to your episode the other day and just great stuff. Thank you for doing that. And uh, we have someone with you today. Tell us who you have with us today. Absolutely. Well, just first, I'll introduce myself. My name is Ryan Erickson. I am the co-founder and vice president of Packaging Compliance Labs. I'm responsible for technical oversight of our laboratory and engineering divisions. And I'm really excited to have with me Ryan Ott. Ryan is our Senior Director of Quality and also Senior Packaging Engineer. He's been with the company three, four years now. And previously to PCL, Ryan and I also worked together in our prior job. So we go back and forth several years together, and it's great to have him here. Ryan, I'll let you add some color. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And Charlie, thanks for having me. Brian, like you said, I'm the director of quality and the principal packaging engineer here at Packaging Compliance Labs. Previous to my time here at the lab, I worked in a contract manufacturing environment with Brian Erickson, working on new product development and supporting several packaging lines there. Decided to kind of get a look at a different side of the industry and came to work with Ryan here at the lab to better understand how testing works and, and still get my hands on that new product development side that I really liked. And through the process, I've had the luxury of working on a couple of fun, unique device identification projects, which coincidentally happens to be the topic of today's podcast. Absolutely. And maybe it would be helpful to provide just a quick background on what PCL does, who we are, and our relationship to the topic today. Packaging Compliance Labs is an ISO 17025 accredited medical packaging lab in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And amongst a variety of different services that we provide for package testing, we also have an engineering team that will get involved 
with customers who are in the process of launching new medical products to market. Of course, that also usually includes the subject of labeling and UDI compliance. So our relationship with the UDI initiative is one in which we have been involved in a number of projects where new medical products are going through the process of not only the routine design and development activities that are typical, but additionally supporting our clients and helping them navigate, first of all, what is UDI? What does that mean and and how does it apply? But then how to actually go about the process of getting into the UDI program and having labels that are designed appropriately with the right type of information and content to be compliant with the UDI program in an ongoing fashion. So we've had a real good experience getting our hands dirty and learning the ropes. And that's sort of the perspective that we're going to be approaching our discussion today. With that all said, Ryan Ott, as our subject matter experts, Perhaps you wouldn't mind giving those in the audience who aren't as familiar with UDI just a top-level outline of what is the UDI program and sort of what are the key things that we need to be driving for as we achieve UDI compliance. Thanks, Ryan. I think before I get into the details of what UDI is, it's important to keep in mind as as we kind of get into this topic that the primary concerns of any company that's developing, testing, manufacturing a medical device is patient safety. Here at the lab, placing patient safety first is one of our core company values. We have it posted on signs and placards throughout the building, so our employees are seeing and reading that statement several times throughout the day. From a high level, that's really what UDI is focused on. It's a set of labeling and identification requirements that the FDA has put in place solely for the purpose of improving patient safety and device traceability. I think in medical device packaging, none of us are completely taken off guard. I mean, traceability has been a backbone to medical devices long before other industries. Obviously, lot traceability was always key. When we have an issue with a device, obviously, we need to trace it back so we can understand failure modes and so on. So obviously, traceability is an important piece of UDI. So I think most of us, I mean, we've been doing lot traceability, usually expiry dating, data manufacturing. And oftentimes, even though it may not have been a specific requirement, we've been using some sort of a unique product code. Even some of the companies well before this have been also adding on a unique package code or unique to that device code. So I don't think it's new to us. And yet it seems to me like the industry was sort of taken back a little bit or sort of surprised by the standard. And there's been a lot of confusion. So maybe you can tell us, you know, what we were doing in the past in terms of what we felt like was uniquely identifying our medical devices and our packaging and how we expanded that to be better. You actually hit it right there. So hearkening back to Ryan and I talking about coming from a contract manufacturing environment in the past, one of the caveats of unique device identification is aligning the format for how you print the expiration date on a package. You know, you mentioned that everybody had their own way of doing things in the past. And I think that's really where the FDA saw the problem was that You had a thousand different people doing things 2,000 different ways, and it led to a lot of confusion in the end. And again, maybe lack of patient safety there. Actually, I want to build on that point there real quick. The lack of a consistent system for the presentation of 
information was the gap that I believe was really uh, addressed by the UDI initiative. So essentially what the goal is, is that if the FDA were to say, hey, you guys need to do a recall of a certain device and a certain production lot or a certain range of dates for a safety reason, for example, it is not always easy for customers in the field who have that product to know how to identify whether that particular product and the affected lots are in their stock or not. And the risk is that someone is unable to identify that they are holding on to inventory that has been recalled, and then that could end up accidentally being used during surgery. And so the UDI program is really aimed at providing consistency in nature of the traceability information that is presented on the package. And that would include things like unique device identifier. A unique device identifier is a very specific number It's a unique number, and it's generated from a database called uh, the GTIN, Global Trade Identification Number Network. And essentially, when that unique device identifier is assigned to the products, anyone in the world is going to be able to look that device up in this system and know that they are talking apples to apples and determine whether or not potential inventory is impacted. So device identification is one part of that, but the other part of that would be the production identifier so that not only do we know that we've got the right device, but do we have the right production lots that could have been impacted? And of course, an expiration dates so that it is front and center. And as Ryan mentioned, you know, there's no guesswork that goes into understanding whether a particular device you know, held in someone's hand is expired or not they can go scan that barcode and the system will have that information. A lot of good benefits and continuity and consistency with the goal of providing a standard set of expectations. So, you know, when we talk about the sterile barrier system, a lot of people now look at this as the, really, I guess it's the nature of 11607 is that the device and the containment system are effectively one. Do we have unique identification for the device also? Is that separate from the package? Are those connected in any way? I mean, we have packaging recalls and we have device recalls. So how is that addressed? So Ryan referenced the G10, which maybe taking a quick step back, one of the things that you have to do as part of UDI compliance is you have to follow the expiration date format that we talked about just a moment ago. It's a four-digit year, a two-digit month, and a two-digit day. You're also going to register in two different databases. You're going to register with the FDA's Good ID database, which is where that unique number that we're talking about is registered where people can access that. But to get those numbers, there are three issuing bodies that the FDA has recognized that you can sign up with. The primary one that we've seen here in the lab, I would say 100% of the time, is GS1. There's two others, the Health Industry Business Communication Council, the HIBCC, and then the International Council for Commonality in Blood Banking Automation, the ICCBBA. Wow. There's going to be a thousand acronyms today. It's going to make things very easy. But <laughs> following GS1 as an example, with those unique item numbers that are being assigned, they have rules for both. There are labeling caveat. There are labeling rules that they're going to have you follow. They have a nearly 500-page general specification document with all of the rules in it. By meeting their rules, the FDA considers you compliant, but they also have rules for 
direct part marking on instruments. And that really applies to reusable instruments so that they can be tracked as they go through the process and go out and come back. While they're all covered under the umbrella of the GS1 book of rules, there are different rules and applications for those. One thing being that an instrument can be very tiny. One of the projects that I worked on here at the lab was a company who had a reusable instrument kit and the labeling piece was fairly straightforward for them. But one thing that was challenging was trying to figure out an appropriate space to actually apply a barcode on it. Some round spaces are hard to scan. Some of the flat spaces were too small. There's some outs that they give you based on real estate. Yeah, there's really two sets of rules there, one uniquely for the device, one for the labeling, and that really permeates through every level of the packaging. In an instance like that, the device will have a unique number to it. It will go into the package. That packaging system that contains the device will have a number unique to it. If you put 10 of those in a crate or a box or a carton, that carton will also have a unique number to it because it's identifying that level of packaging with that number of devices in it. So it kind of just spider webs out throughout your product line, but each individual aspect needs to have its own unique identification number. Okay. And those don't connect with the device inside in the case of packaging, yeah? You know, they would because you'd have this device that you would have in your GTIN database that would be associated with that packaging system that has a unique GTIN to it. So you should be able to maintain yeah, this traceability throughout the whole packaging. You have to define process. that information tree when you build up the request for the numbers. Is that right? So they're, yeah, they're actually linked in the database because they're coupled at the time that mm. the request is being made as a system. Okay, exactly. If you're looking for something fun to do in your free time, GS1 has some examples on their website where they go through a company that sells different colors of t-shirts, mm. different packaging configurations and quantities. And it takes some of the kind of high level medical device complexity out of it and breaks it down to a really fundamental level, but you can really apply it to medical devices. But it breaks it down in a nice, clean sort of flow chart in a way that's easy to explain and, and comprehend whether you're everybody wears T-shirts. So it should make sense to everybody. The way I usually think about it is product that is going to be transacted in the supply chain in which money changes accounts. Whatever a unit of transaction that is, that would be a moment where a G10 number would be applicable. An example where a transaction, let's say we're moving inventory that's bulk to the sterilizer and then to a central distribution center who is going to open the bulk box and remove the inner units inside and then dispose of that bulk configuration and product will not be sold from one organization to another. There's no money changing hands through that particular step of the supply chain. So no. GTIN number is required. But if now that distribution center goes and sells one unit of this, one unit of that, down packaged from the bulk configuration, that next step in the supply chain would then mean that those units would have to have their own GTIN number. I hope that didn't make it more complex. Uh, it's probably just as muddy, but it's the way I think about it. You know, it seems another challenge that we've had the discussion here. We have packaging machines that now have the ability to print UDI compliant data on the non-sterile side of the seal. One of the challenges that we see, you know, we are just now starting to work into the SPD departments at hospitals. And in order for this to have value, you really have to have the ability, I assume it's like the other earlier directive, where you have both machine readable coding as well as human readable coding. 
But how does this play in the case of hospitals and end users that don't have the ability to ingest this data on a scanner? We know in Europe, they've been up to speed with scanners on products for some time. We're starting to roll into more sophistication in the hospital. But when I look at some of the SPD departments at hospitals, very primitive, even the machinery that they're using is t-shirt bag level sort of stuff. None of it is validatable, no sort of tech behind it to make it a high-level packaging machine. So when we get these devices in at, say, a hospital, how are they able to ingest that coding in any sort of valuable way that's developed through an enterprise system? Is that mature yet, or are we a little top-heavy at the moment? It's actually broken into a couple of pieces for the UDI rule. So something where someone would just look at this package, say they don't even have a barcode scanner to look at this, That's where that expiration date and some of the basic fundamentals of it come into play, where it needs to be apparent and consistent across the board. Whether or not you have a barcode scanner in your hand, you can recognize that four-digit year, two-digit month, and two-digit day. Getting a little bit more into how the barcoding piece of it plays, there's two pieces of that. There's that electronic automatic information collection piece, which is your barcode, and then there's what they call HRI, which is the human readable interpretation of what's there. And both of those, at least if you follow the GS1 rules, that's what I'll primarily speak to with examples today because that's what I'm most familiar with. No shame on the other two. That's just my comfort zone at the moment. But there's requirements that they have to be one for one. So what's in the barcode has to be printed right out next to that barcode. There's rules within the GS1 general specifications on the locations where it needs to be in relation to the barcode, the sizes that those need to be. But essentially, anything that you would scan with that barcode that that machine would capture and read needs to be printed out cleanly right next to that barcode. And the spacing and the critical specifications are called out in the standard to clearly explain how to produce that. But I just want to jump in real quick because I want to say this is an example of where PCL's laboratory team would be engaged through, it's called barcode grading. So we consider it a a test. What we're really doing, though, is scanning a barcode at a pretty sophisticated instrument that is going to take a digital image of the barcode and analyze it against the GS1 specifications. And including, it will look at things like the quality of the contrast, whether or not the edges of the printed components of the barcode are bleeding too much into the surrounding substrate underneath about a dozen other things that are pretty technical like that, and it will digest all of that and give you a final grade. That's why it's called barcode grading. And so it's typical when our laboratory is doing testing to establish acceptance criteria based on the nature and application of the product that's appropriate. And then we will be scanning these barcodes against those type of technical criteria in generating a report in which you can see whether your grades are scoring well or not. And of course, you want to have good quality barcode grades for you know product that's going to be commercially distributed so that wherever it is in the supply chain with whatever level of quality of the barcode scanners that are being used, that there's confidence in the automated intake to be performed at scale. We're working now with some companies We're involved with a big hundreds of millions of the nasopharyngeal swabs for COVID testing. And the sealed side of that is maybe two centimeters. So we're challenged to get a lot of information on that non-sterile side of the pouch. There's a concern based on the type of printing that we're doing is the printing itself could have 
some impact to the sterile barrier system. So how do you approach when we start getting, and you alluded to a little bit, when we're getting into small cannulas and on a round surface and we're trying to conform? Obviously, it has to be readable by a human. How do we address these super small real estate that a lot of companies are dealing with right now and still conform to this standard? That's a great question. There are some caveats. Again, just kicking back to JS Wall, like I'm going to continue to do. They have their hard and fast rules, and that's for, I'm going to use quotation fingers here for a standard package. You know, going back to that instrument kit that I spoke about earlier, there were a lot of tiny instruments in there. And you've got to meet the requirements when you can, but the FDA understands that sometimes based on the type or size of a device, it just might not be possible to fit all that information in there. So there are times when you can exclude, say, the human readable portion and just include the barcode. You can fit a pretty small two-dimensional barcode on a package that's still easy to read, even if you don't have the space to print out everything that's actually encoded in that barcode. So for someone that's trying to understand what to do in a small package like that, and and we've actually joined just some kind of medical call-in chats that have been thrown on the industry just to kind of understand how people are doing that, really just got to make the best use of the real estate that you have. And if there isn't enough space there, look at the standard that you have to follow. If you're in GS1, look at their general specifications for the type of device that you're working on. And they'll have the rules you have to follow. And then they almost every time talk about if it's not feasible or possible to include all the required information, here's at a minimum what they'd like to see. That's one of those things I think maybe harkening back to what Ryan talked a little about on the testing side that can create challenges for us too. Early on, when the lab started in the early days of UDI, maybe when only class three devices were supposed to be implemented and, and class two and class one were working towards it but weren't there, barcode grading was a relatively simple test for us to perform at the lab here. We'd open our software, we'd go to usually an ISO 15415 or 15416, which is kind of the previous standard for barcode grading. And you'd set the label down on the machine, you'd click the button to scan it, and, and beep, bop, boop, a, a grade would come out, mm-hmm. and, and we'd record that for our client. As UDI has been implemented, I should say on when you the, sign up- On the direct part marking. Or even on a label itself, oh, um, just, just general medical labels coming in. Direct part marking was a completely different yeah, challenge I was, I was for us here at the lab, there, I'll, I'll let you get <laughs> uh, which would required the purchase of some special equipment. We've been able to figure that out. So we have the capacity to scan both labels and directly marked instruments oh, here at the lab. That's awesome. But following GS1, for example, they're an issuing agency as it comes to barcoding and unique identification for products, but they're not limited just to the medical world. The medical world primarily uses them but they still are using the food industry and consumer goods. You recognize the data matrix code almost everywhere you go. You see them and everything. I got a secret Santa gift this morning with the data matrix code that I could <laughs> scan that gave me some fun information about it. But it's made it more challenging on our end now because within even just that GS1 general specification, there's, I believe, 12 different tables of types of products that you could potentially sell, several of them being medical. And within each one of those is a flow chart based on the type of distribution path it may have, whether it's directly marked or not. And to make sure that we land in that right spot and test that appropriately, we really have to collect that information from our clients now. So we talked about complexity for the end user earlier, where you know Ryan gave an example. If you're about to perform a surgery and you're trying to open four different packages from four different companies and your expiration dates are all listed differently, there's really opportunity that you could misread something and and potentially use an expired device or something like that. I think there's still a lot of complexity out there, but what UDI does is kind of takes it away from the end user and pulls it back into the development phase and makes it more complicated. Yeah, it it puts it in the engineer's hands where 
we can kind of look at it and test it and make sure it's right before it goes out there rather than putting that on someone who's kind of in the heat of the moment trying to use that device and get ready. So it's really created a challenge for us to get it right. We have to really train and educate our salespeople on what UDI is. You know, when someone comes to us and they just say, hey, we'd like to evaluate our labels. Well, we have to ask them, are you looking for UDI compliance? Are you just looking to gut check the quality of your labels to make sure that they're scannable or that they decode properly? There's a lot of questions that we have to ask to make sure that we set our tests up right and actually give them information that's useful in the end. Yeah, I can see. And if we are assisting them with a new product launch and they're looking for our support to help them achieve a UDI compliant labeling system for their new products, then it gets even more top heavy in terms of the amount of information that needs to be sorted through for all the reasons Ryan mentioned. It's, you know, making sure we've got the right category of products who are looking at the right specification with the right criteria. The supply chain has been well understood and we understand which transactions along it are going to require a unique UDI component. It's getting all of that set up and registered. So there is a G10 number that becomes generated. And then there's registering that freshly generated G10 number with the FDA's database. You know, it's quite a project. That's where I think we experience that top heaviness is making sure that it's done right. You know, on the scannable side for the machine capture, are they using QR? We're generating barcodes. Do you have an option of what type of a scattered target code or QR code or barcode? Or certainly that's codified. What are the outlines in terms of what machine capture printing you do? That's a great question. So from the lab here, we can pretty much scan anything that's set up through any of these issuing bodies or a lot of barcode just requirements like the previous standards of the ISO 15415 and 15416. So capabilities here at the lab are pretty straightforward. It's trying to figure out which one you can use. So going into, again, you know, that GS1 general specifications, finding out your product type, you generally land in a table. Again, I think it was 12, but there's one that we commonly see. If you want to check it out, it's a free specification to download off the GS1 site. But table six is where most of our medical clients land. And what that table includes is a list of the applicable barcodes that you can use. So a a 128 linear code, a data matrix two-dimensional code. Then it also lists the grading requirements for that. So a maximum or minimum size of that barcode can be, for example, you don't want to make it too big. You also don't want to make it too small that it can't be scanned. Again, there are sometimes caveats that let you kind of walk around that a little bit if your label or your device is too small to contain all that information. But it just essentially lets you know, I can use these types. They have to be these sizes. And then when we go to do our grading piece, we put all that in. And GS1 gives us what a minimum acceptable grade is based on how far the apertures open on the camera of our testing device, the light angles used. It's a fairly complex process on our side, but from GS1, they try to simplify it and give you a list of applicable codes that you can use based on the type of product that you're manufacturing, distributing. Well, gentlemen, we're running out of time for today. I certainly don't want to fast forward past this important information. So let's do this. Let's pick this up on the next episode. I'm going to have you back and we're going to continue this conversation. Now, packaging engineers, listeners, in the meantime, we've added three important links on the podcast description. I urge you to go there and take a peek at that. That'll help you as we continue on with this discussion to give you some groundwork. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today, talking about the UDI directive. We look forward to having you back so we can continue this conversation. This is Charlie Webb and you're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. See you soon.
This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasberg. Director of media service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.